together about some of God's epitaphs. Some of them were good, but some of them were bad. Well, what do you mean by an epitaph? Well, let me tell you what the dictionary tells me. It is an inscription, an inscription, or a brief statement on a tomb or a grave in memory of one who is buried there. It's a commemoration. Maybe it epitomizes a, a deceased person's life, a typical or ideal example of this person's life. Let me give you a couple of examples I found somewhere. And I don't think these were in the, in the, in the cemetery, but it says, here lies a miser who loved, who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering pelf. Now, where he is and how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. Another one. I lie here low beneath the sod. My soul is in the hand of God. As I am now, so you will be. So friend, prepare to follow me. Someone scribbled underneath that little ditty. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. We know that life is short. We know that from experience. The Bible certainly tells us that. We turn over to James 4, 13 and 14. Come now. You just say today or tomorrow we shall go into this city and spend a year there and trade and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the mark. For what is your life? Ye, not it, but ye are a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So life is short. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed unto men once to die and after this cometh judgment. Death is certain. Life is short. Death is sure. Sin is the cause. Christ is the cure. There was family reunion in the city and some of them wanted to go out to the cemetery and look around. Some of them, of course, didn't live there. And they looked around and they noticed that various epitaphs that were always very commendable to the one buried there. You know, like a sleeping Jesus in hope of heaven with the angels and things of that nature. And one man turned and asked some of the others, where are the lost buried? Because just about every commendation, every inscription, every epitaph is good. And it sounds like most people think that when they die, they're going to heaven. And we'd like for everybody to go to heaven. But when we look soberly at Jesus' words, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he says, it's not going to be that way. Enter ye in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many, that's M-A-N-Y, 
M-A-N-Y, shall enter therein. But the gate is narrow and straightened is the way that leadeth under life, and few, that's F-E-W, few shall enter therein. Jesus tells us that the many shall be lost, though he died, he tasted of death for every man. He made the supreme sacrifice that we might have access to God, forgiveness of our sins, live with him and all the redeemed in heaven forever. But not everybody's that interested. I suppose most folks think they go to a funeral, he or she's gone to heaven. Without looking into the Bible. Well, perhaps this is an old custom that we don't do so much today, where they had statements, epitaphs on their grave. Now, generally, it's just the name, the dates of birth and death. But let's look in the Bible and find some of God's epitaphs, something that he has said concerning a person. Some of them are good and some are not so good, and we'll start with the good ones. Some of God's epitaphs. Well, here's one I'm sure you're familiar with. It's found in Acts 10.38. It says, He went about doing good. Now that would be nice to have on my epitaph, on yours or anybody's. This individual is left us now, went about while on the earth doing good. Isn't that what the Lord wants us to do? Well, of course, this is describing Jesus. When we turn over to Acts 10, verse 38, Peter's preaching to the household of Cornelius, and he says that God hath anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he's gone around, or he's gone about doing good. Relieving those who are oppressed of the devil, for God is with him. Jesus is described as the one who went about doing good. When we turn over to Mark 8 for one example. He had just delivered the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's come down from the mountain. He's gone into Capernaum, into the synagogue. It's a Sabbath day. There's a man who's a leper. Jesus heals him. When he leaves, he's met by servants from a, a centurion. He wants Jesus to heal his servant, and Jesus does it. Then he goes into the home of Peter, and he finds that his wife's mother, his mother-in-law, is sick of the fever. And that's where we begin reading. In Matthew 8, I'll just start with about verse uh, 15. And he touched her, that's Peter's mother-in-law, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto him. Now that's a miracle. Generally, when we start getting better, it takes a little while to get some strength back, and then we'll get up the next day or so. Or, but immediately, after Jesus healed her, she got up and went into the kitchen. I'm sure she washed her hands. She, if Laverne had been there, she said, wash your hands before you get in the kitchen. And she began serving. And then we read that, and when even was come, that's evening, this was the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was, well, their every day was from evening to evening. They couldn't do certain things on the Sabbath, as we know, so they waited till sunset. The Sabbath's all gone now. 
And when even was come, no more Sabbath, they brought unto him many possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and healed all that were sick. All. And it, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken to Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our diseases. That was a prophecy, some 700 years, according to Jesus' work among those who he healed. Well, there are two ideas that are expressed in this idea. Himself took our infirmities and bare our diseases. One is by his sympathy and his compassion. When Jesus came to Bethany, he had been told that his friend Lazarus had died. He met Martha, and then he met Mary. And then we read in verse 37, 35, Jesus wept. When he saw her, this would be Mary, weeping, her friends weeping, Jesus was moved. He wept. And then he spoke the words that brought Lazarus back to their loving affection. Also we find in another place where Jesus was approached by a man who was uh, deaf and dumb. Couldn't speak. And Jesus proceeded to heal the man. Touched his tongue, his ears. Then we read that he looked up into heaven and sighed. And then he turned to the man and he said, Ephrathah, which means be open. And his ears and his tongue were loosed and opened. That sigh is significant. It was an expression of sympathy. Jesus knew that all who were infirmed, who were sick, who were ill, could look back to sin as a cause. I think that was a part of the Lord's compassion in, uh, in John 11. Thinking about death that Lazarus had experienced and all of us will experience. Also, by healing them, to bear our diseases could mean that he carried them away. He removed them. Well, we could go on about Jesus going about doing good, but we want to look at some others. Another one, another epitaph, he was full of good works, or just say full of good works because this refers to Dorcas or Tabitha. This is in Acts 9 and verse 36. The Dorcas was a disciple of Jesus in Joppa. The church functions very well when there are members like Dorcas. Full of good works and alms deeds which she did who quietly work at good deeds, in obedient service. A good friend, Andrew Connolly, told us one day we were visiting him when he was preaching at Bedford, Texas. He said when he got word that someone was ill or had a need and he would go there, that there were two sisters in the congregation who had always been there before he got there. Always. These sisters seemed to have their 
their finger on the pulse of the congregation. They knew or found out pretty hurriedly when there was a need, and they went right there. They were serving like Dorcas served. I think of Dorcas as one who didn't plan to get sick and found it a nuisance to discover that she was dying. Dorcas must have thought now, there's just too much to get done to allow any time for dying. But they sent for Peter. He was 12 miles away in Lydda. He'd been there to heal a man, a man of palsy, Aeneas, and he comes and he restores life to Dorcas. Undoubtedly, Dorcas went right back to her work after Peter raised her from the dead. And Luke tells us of many people who came to believe in the Lord because of the things that God worked in her and worked through her, raising her from the dead and using her as a servant for the needy. Well, let's look at another good epitaph. It reads, A good man and full of the Holy Spirit. Who was that? Described as a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. Well, you perhaps think of several. By good, it means he was a pious and humble man. He was honest. He was devoted to his master's service. He was a man of a kind, amiable, gentle disposition. He's called good. But he's also spoken of as being full of the Holy Spirit. Which speaks of his spiritual maturity and of the fruits of a holy life. Perhaps, and I would, I would feel certain, that he had developed the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Everybody that saw Barnabas that we're talking about here saw love and joy and peace and long-suffering, kindness and goodness and meekness, faithfulness and meekness and self-control. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit and manifested the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life. Now, the apostles named him Barnabas. His parents called him Joseph. Bar means son, and the rest of it, Barnabas, has reference to being a son of exhortation. He was a son of consolation. He was a, an encourager. And that's why Barnabas had this spoken of him, a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. He was a encourager. Let me give you a couple of examples. Barnabas and Paul went together. They took John Mark on their first missionary journey. Left Antioch, Syria, went across over to the island of Cyprus. That was Barnabas's hometown, or I should say home island. Then they went on up to the southern coast of present-day Turkey. And there when they got to Pamphylia, John Mark said, this is as far as I'm going. They had taken him along to help, but he didn't want to help enough to bear whatever they had to bear as missionaries. So he went back home. Well, that was a, a tour, a, a mission work that took about three years, three or four. 
So Barnabas and Paul come back at the end and they report to the church in Antioch and various places. And then they decide, let's go back again. See how these brethren are faring. And Barnabas speaks up and says, let's take John Mark with us. Paul says, no way. We're not taking John Mark with us. Not with me. I'm not going with him. And they had a sharp disagreement. And they went separate ways. Barnabas took John Mark with him, went to Cyprus. Because Barnabas could see in this young man, though he, had, he hadn't matured, he wasn't strong, he had left them first in their work, but that here was a man of God that could grow, be a great service to the Lord. And later on when Paul wrote, referring to John Mark, he had high commendation of him. Barnabas helped John Mark grow up in the Lord. He was an encourager. Also, we think about what is said in Acts eleven twenty three. They heard in Jerusalem how the church was going in Antioch. And so the apostles sent Barnabas. They knew what kind of a man he was. They needed that kind of a man there. And so verse 23 tells us that when he had seen the grace of God, how God had saved so many people, he was glad. And now, notice the rest of that. And he exhorted them. Now, that's what Barnabas did well with it. Son of exhortation. He exhorted them. All that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. Are you cleaving unto the Lord? Well, we've got the purpose in our hearts that we're going to do it. No purpose in the heart, we're not going to cleave to him. Cleave to him. Take a hold of him. Don't let him get away from us. With purpose of heart, cleave unto the Lord. Also, it adds, and much people was added unto the Lord. What we need in every congregation are Barnabases, plural. Those who can encourage and help and strengthen one another. In fact, all of us have that responsibility. What does Hebrews 10.24 says that we should provoke, stir up one another in love and good works, not forsaking the assembly and so forth? But our coming together is to provoke one another to good works, to love. That's what Barnabas could do. And that's what every Christian should be trying to do. Another good uh, epitaph from the Lord was walked with God. Now this is found in Genesis 5, 24. And it's talking about Enoch. Enoch walked with God. The word walk is used in the Bible to refer to living. So when we're talking about walking with God, we're talking about living with God. He walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. Took him into heaven. Translated him, as the writer of Hebrews says. He walked with God. One elementary school girl, she told the story this way. She said that uh, Enoch walked with God every day. And 
he walked and he walked and he walked and he walked and he walked with God so long and God said, Enoch, you've walked so long with me, you might as well come on home with me. Well, that's the idea. God took him. He didn't have to have a funeral because he didn't die. He lived upon this earth 365 years before his translation. Now, his son is probably more famous than Enoch. His name is Methuselah because he lived 969 years. He died. He died in the year of the flood, the flood of Noah's day. Now, yeah, I'm going to give you a little challenge. Can you figure out from Genesis chapter 5 how I could say that? That Methuselah died, he lived 969 years, in the year the flood came. Now we'd like to think that Methuselah did not die as a victim of the flood, but he just died maybe of old age. He's the longest living man we can read about in the Bible. Maybe it was because of his father Enoch, who was a prophet and I would say a preacher. It's Jude who tells us about his prophesying. And he must have left his son, his grandchildren, a, a good example. It, well, I haven't read that scripture yet. Let me turn to Jude 14 and 15. <clears throat> it says, And to these also Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, he was the seventh from Adam. There was Adam and Seth. Now Abel was dead. Cain had slain him and Cain had a curse upon him. So the descendants didn't come through Cain, but they came through Seth. Enos, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, and the seventh Enoch. Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah was the tenth from Adam. But Enoch was the seventh. What did he say in this prophecy? Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their works of ungodliness which they have ungodly wrought and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Well, this is spoken of in the past tense, but he was prophesying something in the future. A lot of the prophecies in the Bible are presented in past tense, but they're pointing to the future. In uh, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Isaiah 53, he was bruised for our transgression, wounded for our iniquities. But that was 700 years before he was bruised for our iniquities and transgressions. And so here he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future, way back when Enoch lived. <clears throat> what is the prophecy about? It's the prophecy of the Lord's final coming. There are many other prophecies, but this takes us all the way near to the beginning of the race. They knew a judgment was going to come way, way back then. The doctrine of a judgment day with its corresponding rewards and punishments was known near the beginning of the race. Also, when we turn over to Hebrews 11, here is a reference to this man, Enoch. Verse 5 says that by faith, 
Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And he was not found because God translated him. For he had, had witness born to him that before his translation he had been well pleasing unto God. He had had witness born to him that he had been well pleasing unto God. Faith lives one day at a time for a lifetime. Let me say that again. We're living by faith. And faith lives one day at a time for a lifetime. Let me ask you this question. If our lives were to be summarized at the close of this day, what three or four word description would fit you best? Think about it. Uh, I mean, don't think while I'm preaching the rest of the sermon, but think about it sometime. During the week, you know, what would I like to have written on my tombstone? What will they more likely put on my tombstone? How about he had been well-pleasing unto God? That was Enoch's. Well, another one. He being dead yet speaketh. This is a, in the verse before, Hebrews 11 and 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And so forth. He did it by faith. Uh, we have to conclude from Romans 10, 17 that God told him and Cain what he wanted their offering to be. By faith, Abel offered. What did God tell them? Well, he must have told Abel to bring an animal sacrifice because that's what he did. And he did what God told him to. Well, what about Cain? Well, Cain was not a shepherd. He was a farmer that worked out in the field. And God could have told him something else. He could have. We don't know. Because people think, well, he must have had to be bring an animal sacrifice. He didn't bring that, so that's why God rejected his. But, of course, God required more than just animal sacrifices. We know that the blood or life is in the blood. Leviticus 17 tells us that. But God also required meal offerings, you know, grain offerings, unleavened bread, a drink offering, things that were offerings, but they were not necessarily, or were not animal sacrifices. So we don't know exactly what he asked of Cain. It may have been the same thing, and he didn't bring it. Maybe he said, well, Cain, since you're a worker in the field, bring something of a, of a grain. Maybe it was his heart that wasn't right. right? We, we are not told. But what we can be certain of is that Abel offered to God what God asked him to offer. God testifying of his gifts, that's the King James part of it, God bearing witness in respect of his gifts, and there's no doubt that God did this in the usual way, causing fire to consume Abel's sacrifice. Let me give you other examples. You remember when the prophet Elijah was up on Mount Carmel there in a spiritual battle with the 450 prophets of Baal? He let them go first. They had their animal sacrifice, they had their altar, and they 
cried unto the God who never responded because it doesn't exist. And then when it was Elijah's time, he offered a simple prayer to God and God sent fire and consumed the sacrifice. What about Judges 6? Here was Gideon. And uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and Gideon ran and provided a sacrifice for him. And the angel reached over with his rod, touched the rock, and fire consumed the sacrifice. Same thing happened with Manoah's sacrifice. Manoah, the father of Samson. And so this is the way it would appear that God witnessed to the sacrifices of uh, Abel. And through it, his faith, he being dead, yet speaketh. Does it seem odd to you that that a person can speak so effectively through the centuries, though the Bible does not record a single word from his mouth? Oh, there are words from Cain, Adam, and Eve, not a single word from Abel. Well, how does he continue to speak to us then? I believe it is by his faith and his example that he still speaks to us, warning us, admonishing us, encouraging us to obey God's will by doing just what God has commanded us to do. Well, our time is getting away. Let's go on to another example. I wasn't through with him, but uh, time is... Getting away from us. Let's look at uh, this example. Kept the faith. We talked about Abel being dead yet speaking. Well, we can think of other men in the Bible who did the very same thing. How about the apostles? They've all died. They've all, well, not all of them, but many of them have left God's will in the Bible for us. They're speaking to us in that way for God. When we turn to 2 Timothy 4, 6, 7, and 8, we read, Paul said, the time of my departure has come. I'm already being offered up. But I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. And I've kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous God, shall give to me, and not to me only, but to all them who have loved his appearance. Now, that's talking about not his first appearing, but his coming again. Here's the crown of righteousness, Paul tells us, that is ready for everyone who has loved the Lord's appearing. Paul said, I have kept the faith. 